0: Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week, we're going to magic school. Not that one. (laughs) Our guest has many names, though in another life he may go by Stephen Price, Canadian poet and literary author. In this one, the creepy one, he is J.M. Miro, author of the darkly fantastical epic, Ordinary Monsters. It's a tale of tortured, magical children in the late 1800s, Think Charles Dickens does X-Men, though we do talk about the issues with that kind of lazy comparison. But yeah, there is a school where they learn to wield their powers, so, you know, I do dip a hesitant toe into the J.K. Rowling sideshow. But, more positively, Ordinary Monsters is an all-inclusive, diverse take on the topic. And that's one of the many things we discuss, as well as the creative power of the pseudonym. Tips on writing action scenes, real female detectives through history, JM's fascination with Victorian London and his family's story of tragedy and adventure. It's a ride. So, come with me to a forbidding school at the edge of a Scottish lock. Lessons are about to commence, and you may learn more than you wish. Let's talk Scared. (laughs) Hi, JM, and welcome to Talking Scared. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Good, good. I believe you're speaking to me from Vancouver Island.
1: That's right, the west coast of Canada.
0: Truly wonderful place to be. I uh, there are a few places right now I would rather be. It feels like the last basin of civilized Western democracy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, we we have we have two young children in our household here, so it doesn't feel very civilized uh, all the time. But but yeah, it's home. We like it.
0: Good, good. Well, it's funny you've mentioned your real life because for the purposes of this interview, you are J.M. Miro, top-hatted, silhouetted, pseudonymous author of the brand new dark fantasy epic Ordinary Monsters. And we will get into the various names under which you live and write as we go on. Uh, But Ordinary Monsters is a bit of a departure for this show. It's a rare excursion into fantasy and, and it's also the first book in a series which is something I haven't really gotten involved with all that much to date. Series fiction, um, but the book is certainly more than a little tinged with horror and the macabre. I think you agree. Well, I I think you're 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 dead to rights on it. Um,
1: I I don't think of it that way though. I, I just think of it. I think it's just something that came out of my brain. Um, I think the horror elements f- for me just feel a little bit like natural part of storytelling.
0: Well, we, we shall plumb your brain, and we'll, we'll we'll get into that. <laughs> so, Ordinary Monsters, it plunges us into an intricately constructed world, um, and I think the listeners probably need something to help ground them in that world. So, t- to help us make sense of this conversation, can you introduce us, in whatever way you see fit, to your story? Well, I can try. Um,
1: you know, sometimes authors are are the worst ones to ask for a synopsis. I mean, you know, if, if we could reduce our, our, our novels into something that was a a little bit shorter then I think the novels would be themselves a little bit shorter. Uh, but I'll, I'll I'll do my best. Um, the, the premise of ordinary monsters is children with powers in Victorian, uh, England being pursued by a sinister man of smoke. That would sort of bring it down to a single sentence. Yeah. It opens with a foundling, a little baby, uh, who's discovered in a freight car by a young woman who's running for her life. Uh, And she approaches the baby in the freight car and he is glowing blue. And that baby uh, will grow up to be the young boy known as Marlow in the book, Uh, a boy of unknown parentage um, with an unusual gift. In the second chapter, we're introduced to a second child, a young half-black boy named Charlie, who is growing up in the American uh, South uh, and has lived a difficult life, a a life filled with, of course, the extreme racism of that time. And he has an unusual gift also. He has the ability to heal himself, whether he wants to or not. And that leads him um, in his current circumstances into all sorts of difficulties and challenges and problems. And when the, when, when his story opens, he's in a jail cell, uh, in Natchez, because he has accidentally killed a white man, any kind of punishment that is being inflicted upon his body, uh, heals itself. Um, so he's sort of trapped in this terrible situation and the novel proceeds from there. There are some adults, these two uh, private detectives, you could call them, who's who are tasked with uh, finding these children and bringing them back to an institute in Scotland uh, where presumably they will be safe. But as the novel proceeds and develops, it turns out perhaps that safety is an illusion and what the characters think they know about their circumstances are not exactly correct.
0: Great synopsis. Um, I think everyone who just heard that will naturally assume that this book is YA or children's fiction um and i would argue that it's 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 definitely not or certainly not exclusively where are you positioning this in your head well you know i i think that uh
1: to some extent genre distinctions are really helpful for readers um for writers i'm not sure that certainly in my case i don't i don't write with an idea in in my head about um exactly which shelf in the bookstore my book should be shelved on uh I don't think of it as a YA novel for several reasons, um, but I I would like to think that there are YA readers out there who would enjoy the book. Uh, primarily, I you know why why is a tricky one because it's it's of course young adult fiction, but it's it's not really determined by the age of the reader, but if it were determined by the age of the reader, I think that there's some dark, um, troubling trigger warning sort of things that happen in this novel uh, that I, you know, I wouldn't necessarily want a 15 year old reading. Um, But then again, there are 15 year olds out there who are far more worldly and wise and mature than I am. So maybe they would be perfectly okay. You know, I really primarily for me, I think that it feels like an adult novel because there's a degree of, you know, in poetry, we talk about um, clear glass writing and stained glass writing, uh, clear glass writing, the purpose being to um, convey everything is a translucent way uh, to make it utterly clear and stained glass writing. You're calling some attention to the language itself as you're peering through the language at the thing being described. And I think there's a little bit of the stained glass writing in this book, uh, hopefully not flowery, but, you know, the the language is um, complicated. <laughs>
0: Yeah, definitely. But I mean, but it's also there are it's things like there are liberal uses of the word fuck, which I really enjoyed, um, because every time I slipped into thinking of it as a YA or or, or younger readers book, it was like, oh, no, 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 it's, it, it's got adult sensibilities. Uh, and the levels of violence and the levels of, of darkness, I think, are, are perhaps. I, I personally don't think it will be problematic for a YA reader, but I think it it's, it's written in a way that wouldn't put off somebody who didn't want a YA book do you know what i mean i think it, it it's got enough in there to be considered either i think but that's, that's, that's just good. my opinion
1: that's good you know i i do think that the the characters themselves um their motivations are are murky and mm. uh, that you know what might at first appear to be a simple delineation between good and evil um turns out uh, hopefully to be a little bit more complicated than that a little bit more like I think life is. Uh, and I'm not, I, I think that might be one of the things that would distinguish it from the YA genre where often the, the, the antagonist is, is I I wouldn't say villainous necessarily, but villainous, um, Mm. sometimes. And, you know, and, and the hero is, is,
0: has, has a, a purity to them. Well, let's jump into that because as always happens with this, I have a plan for the way this conversation will progress. And then in the first five minutes, the author says three things that take me in different directions. So um, let's jump into that because that murkiness is one of the, the real driving forces, I suppose, in this book. I noticed it right away that once we get to the Institute, to the Cairndale Institute, and, and all the scene setting and the character setting that you mentioned has been done. Um, characters who we think may be antagonists become heroes. There's a, a sort of bristly older woman called Margaret, who I thought was going to be a really difficult, obstructive character, and she becomes one of the, the you know most likable heroic characters. And there are other characters, I won't say who, who are revealed to be much more sinister than we imagine and early in the book one character says there's a line he says quote everyone thinks they are the good guys and i think you know that is that is a truism of life but it seems especially true of your story thank you i I mean sometimes you know you'll
1: you'll (laughs) you'll be watching uh a, a movie with you know the good guys and the bad guys and And it's hard to believe that the bad guys in such a movie think that they're the good guys, you know, like the things they're doing are are so, so terrible Mm. and they're painted so clearly as, as, as the, the villain. But, you know, in life, I, I just don't think that it's exactly that way. I think it's a lot more complicated and, you know, people, um, they can justify terrible actions in many different ways. It was out of my control. I, you know, I had no choice. I had to do it. Or this is a terrible thing, but you know it's, it's going to bring about a, a, a better situation. You know the, the ends can justify the means. And you know, I, I just think that is the slippery slope in life. And, and if you can capture that I mean, I wouldn't even call it morally gray. I think it's just if you can capture that shifting point of view where from everybody's subjective experience, they're really not they're, they're doing the best they can. Mm. Uh,
0: then I think you get a little bit closer to the way like you said, the way life is. Well, that's the thing as well, because it, it, yeah, it's not a case of someone who is a, who we think of as a good guy is revealed to be bad. It it is more complex than that in this story. It's more that you get an unpeeling of people's motivations, but Mm. it's never a simple switch from good to bad. Is it? It's just, you get a more sophisticated understanding of why they're doing things and what that means. And that, that shifts them from one morality to another. Um, But I was interested because this book is about, you know, obviously gifted people who have special skills and some of those people live extended lives. And there's another line that someone says, the heart is made of time and consumed by time, by the knowledge of its own eventual death. And in, in in a broader context, the implication of that is that we... We, we live and die and time is the enemy and we do the best we can with it. And the, that that sense of our own mortality in some way influences our morality and how we live our lives. And there's this prevailing notion in this book that immortality or a very long life in some way disrupts the norms of humanity and human morality. And it feels like that's a key thing that these characters, are, they're working on, it on a different scale to what we think of as you know normal human beings Mm -hmm. it's so interesting how the span of a human life um
1: delineates our own mortality but also our our morality you know i um i mean it's i feel like we 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 move through this life with our our loved ones who are moving through it with us but if you were to outlive them all if you are to watch them all perish and then move into a, a, a further time and an after time, how, like, how does that change you? Mm. How does that change your sense of what a life is worth and what your own life means? You know, I, I think it's a really interesting question and a very, very old question. This idea of death is the very thing that makes all of the, the, the good Real,
0: not just possible, but real. Mm. I think it's fascinating. Yeah, because it's like the ultimate consequence, isn't it? Because either, either you you live a life in such a way as you want to succeed and and be liked, so that someone won't kill you. I mean, taking this back to a purely you know animalistic things, you know, if you if you're not a dick, you've got a more chance more chance that someone won't kill you. But also, if you you know if you are a, a spiritual person, you think there is an afterlife, then death is the kind of hinge. Into something else in which your morality is very important, and if you take that mm-hmm. away, yeah, it kind of makes whatever you do not meaningless, but it, I suppose it it untethers it from ethics. I suppose mm-hmm. it's interesting because last week I spoke to Scott Hawkins about his book, um, The Library at Mount Char. And I asked him a very similar question because his book—I don't know whether you've read it or not—but his book is all about these kind of godlike figures who are no longer tethered to, as I just said, human ethics. And it's just—it's made that that book and this book have made a really nice companion piece to each other because they're both sort of dark fantasies, and they're both about what happens when the rules of humanity no longer apply and how that distorts our sense of right and wrong.
1: Absolutely, there's—I think you're 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 very much on the in in the right headframe for it. I, um, you know, the story isn't focused and obsessed on the idea of outliving the natural span of human lifetime, but it is, um, very much tied to the idea of death and what death means for life and, uh, what, I mean, what might or might not come next. I, I think that that's central to not just the kids and the children and their, their abilities, but, um, the world building of the book mm.
0: well, you mentioned poetry before and I, and I should say, I mean well, you're writing this book under a pseudonym, um, and in your other writing life, you are a a poet as well as a novelist, and i've had guests on the show before who 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 write poetry and never had the chance to ask them whether that part of your writing life influences your fiction and before you you answer i'll just tie it to the point we 've just made about immortality in a long life because. There is one passage in which you describe a certain character's very, very long life, a character who is called the Glyphic. Um, and he, he has this kind of one page. His life flashes before his eyes. And it's this sequence of fragments that go through hundreds of years of life. And, and it felt very poetic in its imagery. And I wonder whether there was any overlap between those two halves of your your writing. Well, um,
1: first of all, thank you. I'm, I'm. I know the passage you're talking about, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad that it was, um, that it came to mind for you. I, it's one of my, my personal favorites in the book. I, you know, the strange thing is, everything that that I feel like I'm saying as a writer is all coming from the same place, uh, but when it comes out as poetry, it's. It, the way that it needs to be said changes what exactly is being said, and when it comes out as a story uh, in prose, it, it's the same thing. It 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 ends up changing in the translation into the 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 form that it's taking. Um, you know, the when I think of poetry, it's so much so much of my my thinking about the form has to do with the formal constraints of it, whether it's the line and the line break and the way that that creates its own packet of meaning. Uh, or whether it's the, the use of stanzas and the way that, that, uh, what I'm writing about plays across the stanza, these things are, are the kinds of things that are in my head. And I think I'm thinking about those things because the actual subject matter of the poem, the actual source that the poetry is coming out of is just me. It just feels like it's like anything else. It's just kind of coming from there. Um, The, you know, with the, with the stories and the, and, and the prose, I, you know, I, I think that there's bound to be moments where, you know, it it shifts the register. It moves from talking to singing and it, and it pulls back. Um, I think that's, that's a natural thing for, for any prose writer. Uh, the thing that I've always been wary of and resistant to is the idea, you know, there used to be this Thing called the the poet's novel, the poetic novel, and it okay. was written with very flowery language, um, packed with abstractions. Uh, often there was uh, very little plot, and the language itself was was the thing that you were looking at. Um, and I, you know, I've always resisted that. I, you know, that's that's never really been the thing that that I've been that interested in. Yeah, but I've also resisted, you know, uh, what used to be considered flowery poetry. Uh, for the same reasons I, you know, I, I, think that the language should be, should be pretty
0: hard, pretty clear cut. Well, I'm on board with that because there's, there's nothing I loathe more than, than ornament without substance. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, the, God, the amount of books I've read I, over my many years as a student that just, I just think like, what is the purpose of this? Just like, if you want to make something pretty, take to painting, you know, I, I need a story. Right. That metaphor you just used then about, you know, sometimes it talks, sometimes it sings. Maybe it's because I knew you were a poet going into it, but there are just times in this book when it feels like you hit a different gear with the language. And I almost feel like, oh, you know, it, almost like the Stephen King thing with the pseudonym that comes to life. It's like, oh, has oh, the, su- the poet taken over there for half an hour? And it, and it's just, <laughs> do you know what I mean? There's just, there's little bits where it's like, I don't know whether it's you're more inspired or whether you're just more captivated. But that one piece about the glyphic's long life at one page, yeah, it just, that definitely sang. Um, Thank you. Th- this does bring us to the elephant in the room, I suppose. I- I've hinted at it. W- obvious question, but why have you published Ordinary Monsters under a pseudonym? Um, well, you know, uh, the
1: question actually that you're asking has, has kind of two questions in it. Um to go to go back, I, I would go, go back about 10 years for this. You know, I've, I've always been a reader of fantasy and a lover of fantasy and fantasy is what made me want to be a writer back when I was a kid. Um, and, uh, but, uh, as you're you know, life's long and as you, you grow up and you, you change who you are and you experience new things. I ended up being seduced in my late teens, early twenties into poetry and I pursued poetry with a, with a single minded passion. Um. And, uh, and fantasy books became a kind of refuge for me, things that I read as a reader, not as a writer. So I could turn off that writing part of my brain when I would read them. And I had no desire to write fantasy stories. They were just kind of the safe space for me as a writer to to hide in. And then we had kids, my wife and I. And as happens, you read stories to children at bedtime, which we do every night. And the stories for children are almost overwhelmingly imaginative literature. Not quite fantasy always, but but often with these fantastical elements and something about the intense experience of having kids uh, and the nostalgia that you, you get as a young parent, remembering your own childhood moments that, you know, these memories that have been buried and reading these stories to my kids and seeing their eyes light up and their, you know, the way that their mouths would hang open as they were waiting to find out what would happen next and eager for the page to turn something about that rekindled, I guess, in the storytelling part of my brain, those kinds of stories again. And I started dreaming them up all, all, without even really thinking about it. Um, you know, I've always got these possible ideas for stories happening. Uh, and, but these, they, I started dreaming up these really fantasy stories and I didn't know what to do with them, but I, you know, I would sit down, sometimes when a project I was working on would reach a stopping point and I would just kind of start fiddling around with these other stories, but they weren't quite working. There was something about them that, that it it was like my imagination needed to be given the permission to, to dream in that particular way and translate that into words. And what I found was that I, when I started writing them under a pseudonym, just for myself, not for publication, the stories started coming. It was like I had to embrace the idea of this second self, like the boy that I had been when I was twelve years old, and I decided I wanted to be a, a writer from reading uh, *Wizard of Earthsea*. Needed the chance to sort of sit alongside the person I'd grown into, uh, and be able to—I don't know—write freely. So I, I. I you know, the working manuscript, the working file in my computer for this kind of project had the pseudonym as its, as its name right there on, on the first page. And I wrote the book accordingly. This, this particular book, um, I wrote in kind of a white heat very, very quickly across COVID with the pseudonym. And then I contacted my agent, I finished it and I showed it to my, my wife who's a writer and she, she was very supportive. She said, you know, this, this is, this is pretty good. I think you have something here. You should send it to, to your agent. Yeah. And I, I wasn't sure what to do. So I sent it out to her and I said, you know, this is kind of different from the other work you've seen by me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's still recognizably my sentences, but you know, the nature of the story is different and you'll see that it's got a different name on the title page, but that's me. Yeah and i mean what what do you think is it even something that's worth sending out and she read it uh very quickly in a few days and um contacted me and said let's let's do this i think it's i think this is worth sending out and we talked a little bit about the pseudonym at the time she was very supportive of whatever i needed to do with the project uh either way but i felt a little bit like i wanted it to go out with the pseudonym to Uh, honor the process of writing the book. I didn't want to keep it a secret. So I was sort of torn a little bit between the two things. You know, I didn't want to keep who I was a secret. Uh, And then when we sent it out, I also, I wasn't quite convinced that anyone would, any publisher would actually necessarily want to buy the book. So I, you know, on the one hand, I felt strongly about wanting to keep the pseudonym to honor that. And on the other hand, I felt a little bit like, eh, I don't know if it even matters that much. Because uh, I don't know that anyone's actually going to be interested. And then when the book, very fortunately, was picked up by a few different publishers, suddenly it was a very serious conversation that we were having. Do you, you know, do you want to go with the pseudonym? Is it going to be a big secret? Do you, you know, you know, do you? This is quite different from your other published work. You know, the pseudonym could be a useful way of distinguishing your two kinds of writing. But you know, we had a lot of conversations around it. Everybody was very supportive of whatever I felt I needed to do. And at the end of the day, I thought you know, pseudonyms are kind of fun. <laughs> like it, it it could be a fun thing anyways, and let's give it a try, but let's not make a secret about it. Uh, you know, let's not turn it into some sort of um, sideshow. Just let's put a different name on the front and, and and send it out. And then I'll do interviews like the one we're doing right now and, and talk about it if it comes up.
0: Well, I, th- I think it's weirdly fitting for the story. I mean, for readers who haven't seen the physical book, the, the author photograph is just a a silhouette of a of a, a guy's head wearing a top hat and there's something about the sort of Dickensian quality of that 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 really fits this world you're writing about you know um because at first I I assumed that it you know that you had a very literary life in which you wrote under your your own name Stephen Price and that, and that you what you were using a pseudonym to I don't know to to dabble in the you know the, the the murkier waters of genre fiction, but then I look back through your your published work and your novel, for example, by Gaslight is also a piece of genre fiction. It's a detective story, you know. Um. So then, so then I thought, oh, okay. So it's not a kind of literary snobbery thing. This it, it it's something else. Yeah. So that your your answer reassures me because I have, I have an issue with with the idea that the fantastical is in some way lesser. <laughs>
1: Yeah. um, Well, I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad that was your, your reading of it because that, that is, that, that was a a big concern of mine. Um, Probably the only thing that made me hesitate about using the pseudonym was that I didn't want anyone to get that impression because of course the the two genres, I mean, there can be, there's snobbery on both sides, right? And, and there's there's an unnecessary tension between, you know, literary fiction and, and SFF or specfic and, I I was very concerned about that, but I, I, you know, I did get some good advice, which, which was that if you don't make a secret about it and and you go out there into the world, hopefully no one will, will make that mistake. You know, my second novel by Gaslight, it's, it's about a detective and it's set in the, in Victorian um, times. uh, And it, it it definitely has the, the components and aspects of genre fiction in it. Um, My first novel is, uh, a novel about an earthquake striking the
0: west coast here in canada which i um, want to read I, that sounds great i read this i read about that today and i really want to read that book <laughs> it you know it feels like it was a long time
1: ago but you know in, in some ways that's an, that's a post-apocalyptic mm-hmm. um specfic novel itself you know so it, this is definitely something that's that's there and that's in me my first collection of poems um is a poetic biography of harry houdini the escape artist. And you know, I, at the time, what I understood was that I was—I had it—I—I I couldn't really—I've never been able to write poetry about myself in the first person without it feeling somehow diminished. And I needed this um, at the time. I would describe it as a kind of alter ego or a persona that I was adopting to write about myself because the poems are as much about Houdini as they are about things that I was going through. Um, but what I recognize now is that when I look back on, I, I've five published books and this is the sixth and when i look at all of them it's very clear to me that i'm creating these secondary worlds uh in all of them and that all of that was formed by these primary books that i was reading in when i was in grade five and grade six and grade seven uh you know all of these big fantasy books like that were available at the end of the 80s in the in the mall bookstores in the small town where i grew up uh like Robert Jordan and Terry Brooks and Ted Williams and Ed McCaffrey and on and on and on and on, which I was just devouring. And I think that established and, and, and it was a kind of this foundational landscape for my imagination to, to function. And it's there in the literary work. You know, the novel that we haven't mentioned, my most recent literary novel was called Lampedusa. Which is uh, the story of Giuseppe Tomasi di Lampedusa, the author of The Leopard in his last years of his life. And again, it's the same thing where I have to reimagine 1950s Sicily. Um, you know, there's something about writing about stories and characters and people that are distinct and, and removed from me that allows me to write about the things that matter to me.
0: Well, that might go some way to answering my next question because I knew that By Gaslight was set in the 1880s. Obviously, Ordinary Monsters is set in the 1870s and 1880s in London. I didn't know about the Houdini collection of poems, but that also takes us back to that sort of de siècle world. As a Canadian living in one of the most beautiful parts of the world, <laughs> what <laughs> what what draws you to the, like, the murk and the grime and the filth of Victorian England? <laughs>
1: that's a good question. Um, the only wor- work of mine that's said here are some apocalyptic-seeming poems in my second collection in... And that first novel, which is very much an apocalyptic novel where I destroyed the place i I don't know why because i I love where I live the victorian london i you know the my my on my father's side of the family, my great grandfather came over from victorian london uh to the west coast of Canada, and none of us ever understood how or why he 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 came he came as a young man he was trained as a gunsmith um in London, and uh, one of those skills was akin to locksmithing. And he came out here from London as a very young man and started a small lock and safe shop. And that shop was passed from father to son, because it was always sons in my family for those generations, uh, all the way down to the present day. Uh, and although it's recently been sold it was until it was sold it was the oldest privately owned security company in in Canada and that was a big part of the family my family when i was growing up of course nobody knew how this foundational figure in our family ended up on the west coast and then a few years back about well 10 or 15 years back um my grandfather's younger brother this is after my grandfather had passed away came down from, he, he lived up island. He was a, a bit of a hermit uh, living on a mountain. And he came down because he was, he was too old and infirm and he needed to be put into a home. And the whole family had an opportunity to meet with him and talk to him. And this is somebody I'd never talked to. And he had these stories, stories about his brother, my grandfather, which were heartbreaking. Uh, they were very much two young boys who, um, after my great-grandmother committed suicide, they were very much on their own uh, kind of taking care of each other. We always knew him as uncle bud, but that wasn't his name. He was just, that was just his name as spoken by my grandfather, because, uh, when they were young, little boys, like nine and seven and their mother had killed herself. My grandfather said to his brother, don't worry, bud, I'll take care of you. You'll be my bud and I'll be yours. And he always called him bud from that day on. Uh, anyway, so uncle bud, um, told these stories. And one of the stories he told was about his father. And he said, you know, the reason my, my father left London is that he was fleeing the law, Hmm. he got in some serious trouble with the law and he got on a boat and he sailed across the ocean and he got to Canada and that didn't feel far enough, he was still frightened that they'd come after him. So he got on the train and he rode the train west all the way to the west coast. And that still didn't seem far enough. So he jumped on another boat and he came over to Vancouver Island and there was nowhere left to go. So he stopped there. And I never found out what kind of trouble he got into, but the idea that the founding figure of this security company was himself a fugitive from the law was so intriguing to me that it formed this core fascination that turned into that book by Gaslight, which follows two characters. One is the real life private detective, William Pinkerton, and the other is a made up criminal figure named Adam fool. Uh, in these alternating chapters. But William Pinkerton is, as he was in life, although he's on the side of the law, he's a a dangerous, unpredictable, violent man um, who believes the ends justify the means. And Adam Fool, as I dreamed him up, was, uh, although he's on the wrong side of the law, he's a character who believes that the ends can never justify the means, and he has a strong ethical and moral compass and center. And the story follows these two characters. Yeah, uh, My great-grandfather actually appears in the book in a little cameo appearance <laughs> working in a shop in London. Uh, and that's really where my fascination with Victorian London began. Uh, when this novel was dreaming itself up for me, the setting was a part of the initial idea. You know, I was driving my kids home from, I think, gymnastics or something. And, you know, I just had this idea in my head that popped into my head. Kids with superpowers in Victorian London. And it just seemed like a throwaway idea. As I said, I get lots of ideas and I came home, uh, from dropping, from picking the kids up. And I, I, my, my wife was, was, was there at home. And I said, Hey, honey, what do you think of this as an idea? And I told her and she stopped what she was doing. And she looked at me and she said that one, write That one, that's a great book. Uh, and so I, 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 I sat down and I did, um, because I'd already written by gaslight so much of the research was already in my head. I already knew a lot about that time period in that era, but I also didn't want to repeat the same book. So
0: um, many of the settings are significantly different, of course. Well, yeah, it's a bit of a trotting book. I mean, you take us to Tokyo, you take us to the the South of America, um, you, you take us to Scotland and I will get to Scotland shortly. Uh, yeah. It is quite a trotting book. I, I have got to ask bit of an elephant in the room again, Um, You mentioned you're a fantasy fan and no doubt you've kind of re-engaged with fantasy as a father. Um, You must be aware of the fact that Ordinary Monsters exists kind of under the looming presence of other major franchises about magical young people. So obviously there's there's Harry Potter, but I'd argue that this book actually treads closer to the X-Men universe. And and also in this idea of, of another world that contains sort of predatory monsters it has shades of Stranger Things. Now, let's be clear: you do something quite different in your telling. It's got a very different kind of lore about it, and um, and a very different setting, as we've discussed. But you still must have felt the pressure of that proximity. Well, you know, I, uh, as you said, I, I don't
1: think you could ever open my book and open, say, Harry Potter and think that you're reading something similar. You know, there, there. They're only similar in the the one sentence soundbite um, that somebody chooses to make mm. when referring to the idea of children with, with with powers in a you know school or refuge. You know, I, I I I don't I'm not I'm not particularly concerned about that. I you know Harry Potter was not it wasn't around when I was growing up. I was mm-hmm. growing up in the 80s, so it wasn't a foundational book for me. But you know, I remember being in my 20s working in a bookstore when when those books were coming out and seeing the, the extraordinary passion and love and fascination that children were having with those books and the parties we would have for the launch day, you know, at midnight. And, you know, I I mean, it was, it was a remarkable thing to observe. Uh, I, I mean, I think like anyone, I would love to have the kind of delightful imagination that, that JK Rowling has, uh, on display in those books and be able to write with that, but you know, I, I mean, I understand that what I do is quite different, so I'm, I'm not terribly worried about that. You know, if, if anybody sees a, a connection or a parallel or an echo and likes it, then I'm, I'm pleased. Uh, if anybody sees one and, and and doesn't like what they're seeing, then, you know, I'm sorry for them. Hmm. Uh, but I, you know, for me as the writer, I'm, I'm just writing the story and, and telling the story that, that that occurs to me. As far as the X Men Echo, like I said, the, the uh, the kernel for the idea was just this idea of children with powers. Mm-hmm. Um and I think, you know, as soon as you start using the word powers, you're you're casting back to comic books. And I, I grew up with comic books. Um and I think my imagination was formed by them. But again, I you know, if you've read X Men and 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 you read my book, I, I don't think you're gonna see anything that that looks like X Men aside from that that vague idea. To be clear, you know the idea of, of superpowers, although the phrase itself comes to us, I think from comics, I, you know that that's really been around as long as we've had epic mm-hmm. poetry and epic oral storytelling. Mm. If you go back to, to Homer or if you you, you fast forward to, to Beowulf, you, you know you, you've got these superpowered humans yeah. uh, fighting monsters.
0: Indeed, yeah, I wanted to just give you the chance to address that because I think a lot of the comps I've seen about this, you know, say things like X-Men meets Charles Dickens. I've done a bit of that myself. And I, I know that those things serve a purpose for, to kind of like get reader interest, but I wanted to sort of give you a chance to 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 distinguish the book from that stuff because it is very different um tonally as well. I, I'm I'm not gonna put you on the spot with this. I'm gonna say this. This is my comment, but I also am a huge fan of the Harry Potter stories. Uh, but I do feel like your book is a nice palate cleanse for people who, who for a number of reasons, are becoming a little tired of J.K. Rowling. Because it, it, your book is much more diverse in its cast list. It's, it's very inclusive. Um, and it, it, it sort of starts at a point of the furthest extremity of darkness the Harry Potter books go to, yeah. and then it gets worse from there. So I, I do think for, uh, for, for readers who have developed a programmatic relationship with JK Rowling, th- this might be a nice alternative. That's just, uh, just my opinion. Um, let's get into the books. We've talked about a lot of periphery and not much about the plot. So th- there's a few things. First of all, you mentioned that that quite touching story about, um. Well, sorry, in case I'm mixed up, was it your grandfather and his uncle Bud? My grandfather's brother, Br- grandfather's brother. That's an incredibly touching story. And I wonder, like, is that at the heart of of the character of Jacob Marber? So, so Jacob Marber is the, the the sort of the ostensible villain of this piece, although I think he's a lot more complex than that. But but he's driven by the tragedy of losing his brother when he was young, uh, and they were kind of caring for each other. And it, and it feels like you have a kind of empathy and a sympathy for Jacob Marber yourself. And I wonder whether is there any any influence there from that story you were told as a child? Well, you know, that, that's a great connection to make. I, um,
1: I think that what, you know, the book is dedicated to Dave Balchin, who was my, my grade six teacher, who I credit with, um, kind of saving me in some ways from this profoundly lonely bullied place that I was at, um in my elementary years, and i was i was turning to fantasy fiction as a, as a young boy because I was finding a refuge and a uh kind of companionship in it um because i i didn't have any anyone else um any like minded kids to to be friends with I was very much the the target of of this this degree of bullying that you know kind of formed and shaped me and then by the time I got to grade six i was i was very isolated and this teacher i think saw a boy in need of some kindness and um started recommending some books, including that book A Wizard of Earth Sea, um uh, by Ursula K. Le Guin. Um and and sort of helped me find a way to survive something that I was I was facing down and not quite comprehending. Um the entire book Ordinary Monsters, or the talents really, which I sort of in some ways think of as a single book, although it's spread across three, they're they're books written About difference, you know. It's about. It's really just an ex. In in my mind, it's just this this extended hand from the future going back to that scared, angry, lonely twelve year old boy, and putting a hand on his shoulder and saying, "You know, hang in there, kid. You know, it gets better. You know, you're not alone. You feel like you are, but you're not. And the fact that you're different from everybody around you, yeah, that's that's okay." It's not only just okay it's it's the source of your strength and so when I was conceiving this book and this book was developing on its own, I think part of what it was doing, part of the way it was writing itself is it was taking the idea of isolated children um, and making their difference their strength and it seemed fitting that it was happening in the Victorian age because that was the 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 century of of i mean obviously there have been orphans in every century but that's very much a century of the orphan very much a time when you know these children were uh left to fend for themselves and most of them of course would perish and they lived terrible lives uh, and there were very few protections but there was a growing awareness of it and and a desire for um social change at a at the street level um and and you saw orphans showing up in of course dickens fiction but in in fiction throughout that century. Um but I liked the idea of being able to go back because it is fantasy. I liked being able to go back and take these these kids who who were alone, who were helpless and empowering them, giving them a degree of agency. Uh and so I think I think part of what you're 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 recognizing there are noticing is that throughout the book there are children or there are adults who once were children who are different who were isolated who are isolated uh but that the novel feels a degree of kinship and empathy and sympathy towards towards them um and wants to extend that to them and and that includes jacob marber and and the story of jacob and his his brother although i i don't want to go too
0: much into Mm -hmm. it because i don't want to give spoilers but um i think that's part partly what you're seeing well i i found Marber. I'll be honest, the best character. I was just intrigued by him. I loved the sections that followed him in the book. There are some quite lengthy sections because, which is unusual because he is, for much of the book, the primary antagonist. Um, and yeah, I thought, I, I just love reading about him. But that thing about outsiders, it doesn't just appeal to these these kids either, really, because all right, you've got you know, Charlie Ovid is a, one of the kids who's got a power, but he's also a half-black teen, teenager from the American South. I mean, he's already having a hard time before he discovers his the Kendall Institute and stuff. And there's also people like Alice Quick, who is this female detective and all-round badass, and she's entirely human, but she would have been considered a freak by, you know, Victorian gender concepts. Um, Likewise, you've got Brint, who is this wonderful character, this kind of very androgynous female character who who works in a a circus. Uh, And and it feels like you are celebrating difference, Um, celebrating. You know, there's even there's even a section in the book where you talk about the academic definitions of monstrosity and how they aren't. It's not necessarily a negative word when when addressed properly and uh, it just it does feel like you are throwing your arms open to the outsiders of the world and celebrating them oh I, I, that's
1: wonderful that's i think that's that's exactly what i what i would love to hear so i'm i'm
0: i'm really pleased that you're that that was your reading of the book good I mean, do you have a favorite character that comes to mind oh um you
1: know i i feel a fondness for all of them yeah Having said that, you know, as the writer there, I am aware that they're constructs of my own mind. And, you know, I'm, you know, it's a little bit, um, you, you, you feel like a very peculiar kind of person when you spend hours alone in your pajamas talking to yourself um, and surprised by the answers you're giving yourself. As far as favorite characters, you know, I, I do think Alice has a particular, um, Alice Quick, has, she has a special place in in my heart. Uh, she was one of the first characters that I had. She actually is 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 based on this historical figure named Kate Warren, who was the, the very first private detective agency was the Pinkerton agency founded by Alan Pinkerton. And he, in his early years, hired several women uh, to be um, private detectives because women could move in places that, that his male agents operatives couldn't. Uh, they could infiltrate the women's half of the world, because it was still a very segregated world in gender, as far as gender went. Um, And one of those young women detectives was Kate Warren, who turned out to be brilliant, fearless, uh, highly effective. And he came to trust her and rely on her, um, perhaps more than any other operative that he had. They were very close. She was a a confidant of his. um, And yet we have no photographs of her, except for one mysterious picture uh, of Alan Pinkerton during the civil war with all of his spies gathered around him standing in front of a tent. And there's a man standing next to Alan Pinkerton that, um, uh, many people suppose to be Kate Warren dressed yeah. up as a man. Yeah, uh, but she, uh, he ended up when he, when he died, he had his wife buried on one side of him and Kate Warren buried on the other. So, there was a deep emotional attachment there. Many people thought they were lovers, but even if they weren't, they were certainly, Mm -hmm. um, there was a deep, deep devotion on Alan Pinkerton's part. Now, part of what interested me about um, Kate Warren and and the other young women like her uh, working for the Pinkertons is that when Alan Pinkerton died, William Pinkerton and his brother Robert took over. And one of their first orders of business was to dismiss all of the female agents. They were told um, that they could work at uh, desk jobs or find other employment. Uh, They felt that it was inappropriate to put women in a position of danger, et cetera, et cetera, so on and so forth. And I just, you know, I mean, obviously it's a kind of a shocking thing to think about today. Uh, But, you know, I I just started wondering when I found that out, what those female agents did, you know, like what what would they be equipped? You know, you, you work... You become highly trained to do this certain particular kind of work, and then you're suddenly let go. And where do you go? There, are, there really weren't other private detective agencies out there employing women. Uh, you know, there really weren't job opportunities for women in this line of work. What would they do? And Alice Quick is really my my dreaming up one of these kinds of characters, somebody who's shaped and formed by the opportunities granted her in an unorthodox life and then suddenly finding herself thrust into uh you know um the rigid strictures of a the orthodox society and in trying to figure out what to do and not really finding a place so she's very much an outsider uh very much d- defined by her difference um and aware of it and although she has better coping mechanisms um because she's older and she's very tough um than some of the children in the book she really is
0: not so different from them. She's very badass. She's very cool. Cause yeah. She's the closest thing to an action hero, isn't she, in the story? She is. Very yeah. cool. Um we we've talked already here about a lot of real world illusions in this book and in your other writing. So this is a good chance for me to ask the geeky question that I warned you about before we started recording. So I have a habit of doing this, where basically I I come up with a grand theory and then I ask the author and they just go, yeah, no, but I'm going to ask anyway. So a few details in this book kept bringing me back to the same thought, right? And this might this might be my weird mind, my weird obscure fascination with things, but a lot of it is set in Scotland. That's where the Cairndale Institute is, and it's a big old house at the side of a lock and within it there is a potential doorway to another world and kind of here be demons and it was all built back in time by somebody called Alistair. Was there any part of this story inspired by the antics of Alistair Crowley? I'm sorry no. (laughs) Every time. No, it's just it's just one of those weird coincidences because Alistair Crowley, the the, the the Britons, used to be called the most wicked man in Britain. For those who don't know, he was a kind of um, wannabe wizard um, at the turn of the century. And he, he basically bought a manor house called Boleskin House on the banks of Loch Ness. And, there is, and it's famously haunted. And the story goes that he, he did this massive, long ritual, the name of which escapes me, that opened a gateway to a different dimension from where demons came. Um, and it, it, it just, when I read that the guy who built the house in your book was called Alistair, I was like, it's got to be a reference to that. It's just too close. One of those weird, serendipitous things, I guess.
1: Oh my goodness. I love it. I love it. But no, no, there's no no connection to to what this book's been
0: doing. But that's so fascinating. Well, if you want to go forward and say there is, I will, I will never break your confidence. <laughs> um, <laughs> whilst we're talking then about the this kind of you know the law so to speak i'm not going to ask for spoilers here just in a more general sense one thing i'm interested in is that there is this monster called is it the druga is that how i'm supposed to pronounce this the druga yes right and it's it's kind of threatened to invade our world now i've come across that word before or or derivations of it in in a few fantasy worlds in the in the video game skyrim which is based in norse pathology there are these draugers. um i've never fully understood what that term means can you tell me anything about his kind of mythological background and how you've adopted it for this story
1: yeah um well there it's actually they're two very distinct words um and i say that only because the the, Dr- the druger in the book is fully fictional and made up by me right but it had its origins in a podcast i was listening to uh in which they were talking about the the Draugr is, is is kind of interesting. It's this it's kind of like a zombie really. Like it's a it's a, a massive undead figure who will um uh, you know be able to rip the doors off of houses and, and enter and 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 slaughter everyone within. It's like Friday the 13th really. Mm-hmm. Uh you know or or Halloween. You know, it's sort of this this it's the the unkillable unstoppable m- m- monster. And, uh, and I, I found it really fascinating in part because I was, as I was dreaming up this book, I knew that I wanted gray space between living and dying life and death. Uh, and so I was looking for the monstrous in, in, in that place. Um, but really that's about as far as it goes. The, the, the Druger is not a Drauger.
0: Okay. So it's your own mythological bad guy or, or bad girl. Okay, fine. Well there's one very short allusion to something in the book um something quote far beyond the druga, a darker power banished so long ago that it was like it has never been and that's all we got now am i right in thinking that that may be the big bad of the series we're yet to meet well you're certainly right in thinking that you'll you'll want to read book 2 to find out um
1: <laughs> what what that that line is referring to uh, you know that's that's carefully placed in there too to set up
0: yeah, I thought it wasn't a throwaway thing. It felt ominous.
1: <laughs> yes, that's good.
0: Well, it makes me think because, like, you, this other world through this gateway, the it, it feels weirdly like a kind of ocean depth, right? It feels like unexplored territory, and who knows what is swimming swimming there? You know, that's what because there, there is one short section that's set in that other world, and it, it really does feel like the deeper you go the more horrors you may find it almost feels like that 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 scene in the phantom menace where there's like they go to the gundans city and there's like a big fish chasing them and that fish gets eaten by a bigger fish and then that fish gets eaten right. by an even bigger fish and then someone says there's always a bigger fish and it feels like that's the world you're creating where we're just going to get layers and layers pulled back and bigger and bigger fish to fry well i, I love that it feels like that to you that that that's how I want it to feel. What, what What's happening with the the books two and three, I presume? Are they written? are they what what's the crap? well i'm i'm
1: I'm deep in book two right now. Uh, we're on track as of this moment uh, for publication for next year. Um, and book three, you know, as I said, I sort of think of the three books as a single big story. I have a a very clear idea of of where things are going and, and what needs to be done um but saying that you know as as a writer saying that i i'm i'm aware of the fact that you know i i can often have a very thorough and detailed and excellent plan in in place and i sit down and I start writing and about 3 pages into the very first day of writing i'm already making significant changes and everything has to be jettisoned and reimagined so <laughs> you know i i i allow myself the freedom to break from what i've what i think i figured out um but yeah, as far as book two, we're, we're
0: hopefully, fingers crossed, very much on track. Good, because I mean, this book ends on a very melancholy, but very defiant moment. And all I'll say is, if certain things don't happen, and certain things aren't, aren't corrected, I'm going to be very angry at you. <laughs> well, I hope I hope you're not angry with me. Because you're satisfied. if the famous rule goes that the, the in a trilogy that the, the first book is introductory and the second book is very downbeat and the third book is redemptive and and you know celebratory that's the star wars model um you've gone full empire strikes back in this very first book it 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 finishes on a very melancholy downbeat note so yeah you 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 i I need the second book (laughs) (laughs) well hopefully you won't have to wait
1: too long um you know, where, like I said, where I'm, 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 I'm writing pretty hard. So fingers crossed, that's, that's, that's going to be on its way. I, you know, it's interesting that you say empire strikes back as a writer, as a storyteller, I've always been so fascinated. I mean, obviously it's, it's phenomenal movie, but I've been, I've been always been so fascinated by the inversion of it, how it begins with the big battle Hmm. and how it ends with the, 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 I mean, obviously it's, it feels bigger, but it's the small battle. You know, it ends with the the, the two human figures, but mm-hmm. it, it begins with the, the the dramatic set piece. It's it feels like such a uh, counterintuitive way of telling a story, and yet it's so incredibly
0: powerful. I'm thinking of my feet now. You, you do something? No, you don't do something similar because the book ends on a big climactic kind of conflict. Um, But for me, the by far and away the most impressive, memorable sequence in this book um, is the, the the action scene on board a train that's taking our protagonist north to Scotland and they are attacked and it's one of the very, very best action sequences I've read in a long time because it, it's weirdly rare that you get action sequences in, in horror. It tends to be that you get, like, you know someone gets stabbed or a monster kills. They, they tend to be quite fleeting um, and because this is not purely a horror novel it's a fantasy novel it felt like it had more scope for these big scenes but do you have any tips on writing action especially when it's covered by multiple perspectives like that scene is and like many of the scenes in your book are because it's you you do it very clearly and i was genuinely like just turning the pages i wanted to know what would happen next in that sequence (laughs) oh um well i mean i i don't know
1: where where do we begin um you know, in some ways, I think you've you, you've identified both things that were a little bit challenging: the the action part itself, and the and the shifting points of view through that scene. Um, in some ways, I think that the what happens immediately before the action scene is more, almost more important than the action itself. And action can take you know a paragraph really and can be incredibly uh, memorable you know i always remember this there's this scene in cormac mccarthy's blood meridian which is a, a mm-hmm. very beautiful and horrifyingly violent and dark novel um but there's only it only takes about a paragraph you know a page perhaps at the at the most it's a long paragraph it's almost a single unbroken sentence and it's this this moment early on in the novel when uh these um uh, white, warmongering um, ragtag party of, of of soldiers are are traveling um, sort of towards Mexico uh, in order to continue this 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 Mexican War uh, that's supposed to be settled. And uh, they see this herd of ponies being driven across the the desert, and they see the the dust storm um, come up, and they don't see really anyone with the ponies, and they're thinking maybe we can get some of these, these horses and, 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 and take them. And and they're just this, this storm of horses riding across kind of cutting across their, their path. And then suddenly the, uh, these riders, um, these first, first nations, native American riders, uh, swing up from where they've been hiding themselves on the far side of the ponies and uh, up, upright, and they've all got, um, weapons and they slaughter, uh, these, these, this ragtag army and they disembowel and do the most horrifying things to these, to these bodies. And it's all written in only about a paragraph, but it reads in your mind as if it's going on forever. Mm. So, you know, a little bit of space can ca- carry a lot of, a, a lot of weight in a book. And I, I always think of that passage because it's horrifying and memorable and brief. Um, But, you know, part of what makes it effective is that long lead up, which takes at least as long, perhaps longer as they're seeing the horses and they're trying to puzzle out what they are and, you know, the, the slow dawning realization of an opportunity. And then the opportunity turns into surprise. All of that setup is the thing that makes the, the action effective, Uh, you know, or you can think of the, the two towers that, that the movie where everyone's waiting at the Is it Helm's deep Mm -hmm. there, you know, and you see these, the faces of these, these people waiting for the, 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 the attacking army to, to come. And, and it's that long, silent anticipatory moment that, that I think makes the, the action effective and powerful. So I, I think, I think that's, you know, maybe the, the first advice I'd give about an action scene, as far as the roving point, point of view, um, you know, it's really all about where you exit your point of view and where you enter it uh, when you move from character to character, especially in an action scene. So you want to um, cut it kind of if, – if, if we were talking about film cutting, we would be cutting it on the offbeat uh, so that, it you know, you're sort of instead of taking a full step, it's a half step, and you're about to come down, and then you cut, and then you begin at the next point again. If that makes any sense, I don't really
0: know. No, it doesn't. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned kind of film because – the entire scene feels incredibly cinematic, and, and when you talk about that build-up, there is just one image that has really stuck with me. Where Jacob Marber stands in front of this moving train, and as it hits him, he kind of bursts into the, into smoke. Because, as you said right at the start, this that he's a, a man of smoke, and he bursts into this smoke, and the train screeches to a halt. And I just keep seeing that this guy stood there with his arms outstretched as a train barrels towards him, and then boom. He's just vapor, black vapor. And that feels just like ready for the big screen. So I, I do wonder <laughs> with things like this, have there been any talks about adaptation or anything you can talk about?
1: Um, yeah, well, not, nothing I can really talk about very much, but I, I can tell you that the the rights have been optioned. Um, you know, and optioning doesn't necessarily mean that a project's going to be greenlit or move ahead, um, but it's early days yet, and and uh, it would sure be fun to have it to have it translated to
0: the screen. It, it feels like it could just be turned into a film. It just feels that way. I wonder. Did, this is a question that writers often don't like. Was there any part of your writer's brain that had one eye on adaptability when writing it? No,
1: unfortunately, <laughs>
0: I, I I don't know how you would do that, um, but
1: I, I do know that the, the stories that make the best movies are short stories or novellas and it has to do with structure. Um, and novels are particularly tricky, uh, to translate to the screen with the, the rise of streaming. Um, and I mean, long form television, I I think there's been this great gift given to Mm -hmm. novelists where, you know, their, their work can be translated in a way that, that, uh, allows for the time to capture a lot more of the things that go on in a novel. Um, but you know, so much of the art of, of fiction has to do with point of view, um, has to do with the way that you, you manage the language. Um, and you, you move directly into the, I don't know, the interior camera of the reader, uh, and television and film is a a completely different art form. Um, So I I don't really know how unless you work with slightly different structures or shapes or simpler structures and shapes as a novelist. I I don't really know how you would ever write a
0: novel that Mm. that you would be thinking this would be very easily translated. Maybe it's the testament to to kind of the the, the visual clarity of your writing, but I could just see them as movies. Like I say that scene on the on the train and and other aspects that it just felt ready to just pick up and put into a visual medium so i I, yeah i do hope it happens in whatever format thank you moving to the last two questions i ask everybody we you've mentioned a lot of books that have been an inspiration for you can you recommend a particular book for my listeners um and tell us why you've picked that one
1: yeah um well i can tell you one that i've read reread recently um that i hadn't read in a while uh um this is a book uh now this is this is pretty pure high fantasy, so we're not really in the realm of horror, uh, or you know, I may be talking scared. Um, but but I'd love to give it a, a shout out. It's by Patricia McKillop, uh, who passed away recently. Um, called the Forgotten Beasts of Eld. Uh, and you know, I I read it because she passed away, and and I was just thinking about um, you know, what we leave behind us, and and it seemed an, a great opportunity to revisit her work. Uh, but I hadn't remembered the book as clearly as I thought I had, you know, one of the books that made me want to be a writer was a wizard of earth sea by Ursula K. Le Guin, And part of what, um, part of the reason that it stuck with me was the language that it, it felt like it was, a, a very old voice. Uh, it felt like it was, it was tapping into a kind of, um, poetry that is closer to what we get when we read Homer or Beowulf or, you know, any of these, these great epics of the past. And I hadn't remembered that McKillop's book forgotten Bees of Eld is doing the exact same thing. It is so mysterious and so beautiful. Uh, And it's also incredibly um, forward thinking and cutting edge in its depiction of uh, female characters and their agency and an envisioning of a kind of storytelling that is not centered around the—I um, mean, I—I I hate to gender it—but the 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 masculine version of the conflict, mm-hmm. violence um, uh, version of the fantasy novel, you know, where you know you have great armies and 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 monsters that are attacking, and you know, there's hacking and slashing with swords. The Forgotten Beasts of Eld works very differently. Um it's a it's a story about a young woman, a sorceress with the ability to call, using their true names, um, these mysterious magical creatures from different parts of the world. And then she waits. She waits in her small white tower in this isolated forest on top of the mountain. She waits for them to come and she calls them. And she slowly accumulates this menagerie of of these bizarre, terrifying creatures. And then of course, as happens, uh, there's a baby that's dropped off at her doorstep and she starts to raise this child at first as if it's a uh, part of her menagerie and, and later as if it's, uh, as if the boy is, is her own, really her own son. And then as the boy grows up, he goes off into the world and leaves her and she has to grapple with that. But when he returns from going off to the world, he brings the world with him and uh, she has to figure out how to navigate that. And it sounds like it's such a simple and and quiet story, and yet it's enchanting.
0: Okay, I've never heard of it, so I will I will check out and add it to the show notes. That's yeah. Thanks for that. Thanks for that. Uh, Can I just Mm -hmm. say while we're talking other people's books, just to take the chance, your your partner is uh, Essie Edugian, is that right? That's right, Essie Edugian. Yeah, Edugian. Sorry, can you please tell her how much I enjoyed Washington Black? (laughs) <laughs> I, I'll be delighted to do so. Please do, because I, I loved it. It should have won the Booker Prize. Um, I was furious it didn't. And just, yeah, please tell her. And, and listeners, if you want a a piece of historical builders, builders, I can't say the word, historical buildings, Roman fiction, I, I can't recommend it enough. So please pass on my regards to it. It's a, it's a wonderful book. Absolutely. Uh, and my last question for you. What truly scares you, JM. Um
1: aside from public speaking, uh <laughs> you know, I have a uh, two recurring nightmares that I've had for the last 10 years. Uh and the first one is my our daughter, who's our firstborn. She's maybe two or three years old and we're walking in the street and she starts running ahead of me and I can't catch up to her and she runs into traffic. And the second recurring nightmare that I've had uh for the last 10 years has been our my son our second born, um, who I'm in a crowd and I'm holding his hand and then he, his hand slips out of mine and I can't find him in the crowd of people. Um, so I I think, you know, there's nothing that terrifies me more. I wake up in a, in with my heart pounding in a, in a, you know, blank sweat and I, I can't get back to sleep. And I, you know, I think it has something to do with that, that peril that you feel the defenseless people around you could be in, uh, and you're powerless to help them. That's awful. Do, do you have to get up and go check on them? Uh, I, I did for years, yeah. you know, they're a little bit older now, but the dream doesn't change and mm. they're still as, as young as they are in the dream.
0: I was going to um, say, I wonder if you still have that dream when they're like 25, it wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah.
1: I don't know. I, you know, I, I mean, I'm in my forties now and I still occasionally have a dream where I've shown up to math class and mm. in, in grade 11 and we're having an, a test and I, I haven't, I, I don't recognize any of the math
0: equations. So, possibly it'll keep going. I don't know.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, well, I mean, you get to, I would say at least you get to take care of the, the kids in your books, but you, you don't take particularly good care of them. Awful things happen to them, which is why I need book <laughs> two to, to correct that. Um, but, JM wrote, listen, it's been a pleasure. We've taught, it's been one of the longest episodes I've ever done this, but it is a 650 page book. So, what do you expect? Um, it feels like one of those books that's going to do. Absolute gangbusters. Jay and Miro, thank you for talking scared. Neil, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm going to start by saying that this book is absolutely fine for a 15-year-old to read. Someone even younger, to be honest, if you're okay with them reading the word fuck, more than you'd expect in a Victorian-era school story. I know JM was keen to distinguish this as an adult book rather than YA, but I don't think it matters. I I think it's genuinely one of those rare books that absolutely does function for both markets without compromising on the appeal to either. It's the kind of book I would have adored when I was a teenager. Big, bold, immersive and and nicely dark. And I've enjoyed it just as much as an adult. Yeah, it it was kind of what I needed. a A bit of a tonic to all the horror that I've been reading. I know that sounds... A bit silly it's a horror podcast but you know reading book after book after book of truly dreadful things happen to nice people it does wear on the psyche a little bit even if you love it and ordinary monsters is by no means light but it is a little bit more i don't know magical is all i can say It's also a nice antidote to the nonsense spewing from J.K. Rowling's keyboard. Proof that a story about a magical school can be both non-derivative and inclusive. And look, I'm not going to wade too much into that whole topic. I I said what I said about J.K. Rowling in the interview. Everyone already knows what I think about that, I hope. And and I'm not going to change anyone's mind anyway. Who am I to try? I have always loved the Harry Potter books. Loved them. Think they're wonderful even as i've become utterly appalled by the author's rhetoric and, and and what i once considered a misguided take that was based optimistically on flawed good intentions it now looks indivisible from hate speech and i'm i'm not sure what to do with that when the books meant so much to me and i've already recorded and deleted a whole thing where i tried to explain those feelings and i've i just came across as sanctimonious and half-arsed at the same time which is is quite a feat I think it's a far more positive thing to talk about Ordinary Monsters as a palate cleanser to all that. It not only throws its arms around the world's outsiders and by that I don't just mean the white middle class ones that look like Emma Watson (laughs) but it also shakes up the gender expectations of the characters. JM didn't seem to want to go down that road which I understand but I have my suspicions that it was a somewhat intentional corrective but either way it's a great way to approach a familiar story set up. And it feels like this is a series that's going to explode in popularity, and I hope it does, because it manages to be both truly horrific in parts, but also keep its heart completely in the right place. Now, normally, I say get in touch about anything, and that still stands, always, but don't come at me about criticising J.K. Rowling. There's no point. No matter how much you or I love a book. I'm never going to be on board with anything other than the idea that as many people should be happy as can be happy. I'd rather you contact me with your thoughts on Ordinary Monsters or any other book that you love. Also, on a more practical note, I've kept December almost entirely free this year to perhaps catch up with authors who don't have a book out in 2022 but who I really should speak to. Anya Alborn is on that list but let me know Any other suggestions, you can reach me at talkingscaredpod at gmail.com or on Insta and Twitter at TalkScaredPod. Always delighted to hear from you. And and do me a favour, I'm trying to make another leap forward in listenership. So if everyone who likes this show tells just one friend about it, either online or off, that can make a massive difference. So please do. Also, leave a review. And if you fancy it, Join Talking Scared Patreon for loads of bonus content. I recently did an hour-long thing explaining my choice of 50 best horror novels, and it went into places, into memory and nightmares and and all sorts of stuff. So yeah, sign up. Otherwise, I should be on holiday when you hear this, or I could still be stuck in the security line in the airport. (laughs) Either way, I'll be back next week with Stephen Lloyd ex-comedy writer for shows like Modern Family and How I Met Your Mother, who has turned his hand to some satanic school horror. That's the final piece of this trilogy of adolescent terror that we've been going on. Until then, embrace the inner you. Open your third eye and do other, less nonsensical things to be happy. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared.